Matthew 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, how you doing? Good. Nice, cold, rainy morning. Love it. Um, <clears throat> so, so this one's different. I'm actually, um, so there's this, this passage sort of ends with Jesus as a baby moving to a town called Nazareth. And then the very next verse picks up literally like 30 years later. Um, and so if you ever like not seen anyone in a while, you're like, hey, where have you been? Like, what have you been doing? So these are questions that we kind of have about Jesus, about what he was doing. So today I'm actually talking about that. I'm actually, I'm actually teaching from the absence of a passage in the Bible, um, which is different. Um, but there's a lot that we can tell about what was going on. Um, and, and, and stuff like this to me is, is really important. It's sort of, it's sort of um, because we have this idea that Jesus um, sort of a, appeared with full knowledge of everything. Um, and <clears throat> that he was just kind of like sitting in a chair somewhere for a while waiting. And he's like, yep, it's time. Let's go. Gets up and goes to town. But there's a, there's a very long history. We, we can look at um, um, what Jewish boys did when they were young. We can pick up on all kinds of things in scriptures. We can pick up on um, some of the things that he said and sort of in, in, look at those and say, well, in, in light of what he says about this, how he answers this question, what does that mean about his youth? We can tell a lot of things. Um, and so this stuff, I, it's, it's honestly a bunch of stuff that I've had for a while that I've never had an opportunity to be like, oh, have you ever wondered what Jesus did before he was like well-known as Jesus? Like, let's talk about that. So we're going to talk about that this morning. And it's sort of going to set the stage for what's going to come next week when his ministry starts, when he kicks it all off. So um, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we're going we're to jump into this verse right here. Um, and uh, maybe all of this will mean something good to you this morning. Maybe it won't. Who knows? But I'm glad you're here. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, we, 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 we come here um, and, and gather at a place like this, and we bring all kinds of um, stuff that we've picked up throughout our week. And uh, people have said things, and it's just kind of stuck to us. And we have fears that we're carrying around, it, and we, we try to put them away, but they're still there in the back of our minds. And we, um, we've had fights with friends and with spouses and with our kids and um, life is difficult and it's, uh, it's, it's sometimes scary and sometimes wonderful um, but we bring these lives here um, and we present ourselves to you and we say here we are, what do you have? Um, because we need more than what we can see with our eyes, we need more than um, what we can feel with our, with our hands and with our hearts. We need to understand some bigger things um, for our journey so that we can keep moving forward. I ask that you would give us exactly what we need, that you would uh, allow us to see things that we haven't seen, um, look at you in new ways, look at the, um, 
the world in new, way, in new ways, through new lenses. Look at Jesus through new lenses. Understand um, our own hearts and humanity in new ways. Um, teach us, encourage us, give us whatever you have for us this morning. Thank you. In your name, amen. So we're going to start here. Uh, and he went and, li- wow, that's a little blurry. I feel like I'm, is it, is it my eyeballs? That's a little blurry. Okay. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So, that's, uh, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So we know this. We know he lived in Nazareth. Um, Nazareth, we can look at the history of Nazareth. Um, here's, how, here's how it is today. It's sort of a, a bustling, bustling city. Um, and uh, Jesus was raised here. And so what do we know about Nazareth here? I'm trying to figure out my notes here. Uh, give me a second. Um, first off, Nazareth was not like Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a really small town, um, like really, really small. Bethlehem, I mean, Nazareth was, was bigger, um, but it was influenced more by surrounding cultures, by major um, metropolitan areas, um, uh, because of travelers that came through Nazareth. Um, it was, um, there's this place where you could stand on a hill and look out over sort of the plain that ran along the coastline from the Mediterranean Sea. And there's this road that led along the Mediterranean Sea. And from Nazareth, you could stand and you could look down. You could see how it's, it's, it's pretty high. It's, you could look down and you could see the Mediterranean Sea and there's this road that leads alongside of it. It's called the Road of the Sea. Um, and this road went a long ways. It goes really far. Um, it actually, it crosses the land bridge um, from, um, from sort of Africa to Egypt. Like it, it, it is the route that you would take um, that connected two completely vastly different worlds. It's the road, uh, it's a very famous road. It's a road that, um, when you read the story in Genesis of Joseph being sold into slavery, this is the road. Um, you can still walk it today. You can still see um, the ancient stones that were laid there sort of to pave this road. Um, and you can sort of picture Joseph there sort of in chains, sort of walking, being sold into slavery down this road. It's the same road that Alexander the Great um, and his armies took when they were conquering the world. Um, and later, about 300 years after this text was written, it's the same road that Napoleon would take to conquer the world. And so it's a well-known road. Um, and so the events that would happen here, um, as a young boy, Jesus would have been able to see massive caravans of people traveling along this road from all over the world, speaking all kinds of languages, carrying all kinds of things, traveling for all kinds of reasons, sometimes just individual travelers, um, tradesmen, um, maybe families looking for a new life, um, fleeing whatever they were going through, whatever cities maybe had been conquered by Rome. Um, Sometimes you would see this, um, a Roman processional, a victory procession. Um, After um, a city was conquered, you would see the Romans sort of taking all the treasures from there and traveling down the road and carrying these treasures from this new conquered place um, down the road. And so the things that Jesus would have seen would have informed his views. It would have sort of shaped how he views the world. Um, at, the, at the front of these parades, you would have seen huge displays of military might. Um, you, would have seen the, you would have seen sort of the, um, the governors or the emperor, whoever decided to sort of celebrate this with them, riding in the chariot. You would have seen the guy behind him in the chariot um, whose job was, whose sole job was to whisper in the ear of the king, all glory is fleeting, 
all glory is fleeting. The whole time everyone's like, good for you, you're amazing. Glory to you. And he's like, no, all glory is fleeting. You're going to die. So this was a fascinating sort of things that were happening. At the very end of this parade, this ancient Roman parade, you would see all the prisoners of war taken and they'd be all bound. Um, and though, basically they were those who are doomed to die when they get to where they're going. Um, and they'd be walking bound with their, with, their, with their wives and with their children all on their way to slaughter. So Jesus would have seen all kinds of different kinds of sights there. Um, hold on. I feel like I'm going to... There's, like there's been like a sneeze coming for like three days and it's just not hitting. All right. <clears throat> maybe, maybe it'll come today. Even so come, sneeze. Um, okay, so... Uh, so what was Jesus doing in Nazareth? Well, um, you can read different passages and gain different things. From what we know, he was... Well, first off, we know he would have been doing, fulfilling the duties of the oldest son because obviously he's the oldest son. Um, and, and so you can see some things like in Mark chapter 6, it says he went away from there and came to his hometown. So he's in his ministry here and he's traveling, he's speaking, he's teaching um, sort of new, new interpretations of the Torah. And it says that he, after going to one city, went to his town, his own hometown. He came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters with us here? So some people that maybe knew Jesus in his youth. And here he is, he's in his 30s. And he comes walking in, and he's just this well-educated, well-spoken, influential guy with many followers. And he's saying things that are incredible and that are moving and touching. And the people who knew him when he was little, what happened to this guy? Like, this, this is Jesus, remember? He, he's a carpenter, the son of Mary, this boy. How is it that he knows all of the things that he now knows? Where did he learn them? So we can glean a few things from here. First off, we're going to start with, I'm going to underline a word right over here, carpenter. The word carpenter is this word tecton. I've taught about this before. Tecton, we, see, when you watch like the modern day movies, you see Jesus like making a table. And he's like white, blonde haired blue eyes, right? And he's like making a table. And he's sitting at it, look, ma, like I made, I made a table. Um, that's, not, that's not what this word meant. The word... Um, I mean, it could, but not in this part of the world. Um, in Nazareth, a tecton was not a woodworker who made like furniture. A tecton was a, um, a stonemason. So Jesus was a, uh, uh, someone who carved stones for fitting maybe in roads, for uh, building in temples. You would receive sort of a blueprint, if you will, um, and it would say, you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're responsible for these kinds of stones that you're going to make. Here's, you know, 10 stones that you're going to carve, and maybe they're whatever size, and here's the specifications you're going to carve them to. And you get out your tools. Here's a set of ancient Roman tecton tools. Tecton tools. Um, and, uh, and you're going to get these tools out, and you're going to hammer this rock into this particular shape. Um, and we know that there was a local city. I didn't write down the name of the city. I wish I had because I went back and searched my internet history, and I could not find where I read it. Um, but I had it. Uh, I, there's, there was a local city like four miles away that... that before Jesus was born, shortly before Jesus was born, was absolutely ransacked and destroyed that it was being rebuilt um, in Jesus' youth. And it's like four miles. And so he would have gone there, probably made these stones for that city, 
Um, there were temples being built. There were walls. There were roads. Um, and he probably learned Greek traveling there, working there, because Jesus spoke Aramaic, but he also spoke the trade language Greek, where if you're going to be traveling, if you're going to be speaking publicly, you're going to speak Greek, which is why the scriptures are written in Greek. It was the trade language. Everyone had their own language, and then there was the main trade language. Okay, um, And so Jesus is making these stones, and he's carving them. And uh, the average stonemason probably made you know, five or six, if they were building these huge things for temples, probably made five or six in their life. You probably never would have seen a temple being finished built unless you were like, um, you came in at the end of it. Um, generations of children would work on these temples their entire life and never see them completed for hundreds of years. Um, so this is what Jesus would have been doing. Now, who would Jesus be working for? He'd be getting paid for this. Um, what would he be doing with this money? Well, there's a few things that we do know. Um, from what scholars can tell, and per- scholars are pretty much agreed on this, um, and maybe you've never heard this, um, Mary was most likely widowed at a young age. Joseph died at some point in Jesus' youth. So she's married young, and then she's widowed young, probably when he was about 10 years old, maybe less. Um, because, um, first off, he's never mentioned again after Jesus, about 10 or 11 or 12 um, when, when the family goes as a family to the Passover. That's the last time we see Joseph mentioned again. Um, he's not... Um, he's... Uh, hold on a second. He's not mentioned at the Feast of Cana in Galilee, but his mother's there. Um, he's not mentioned at the death of Jesus, but his mother's there. There's like three or four different times where she is mentioned. And even the people who speak to him about him in the passage we just read in Mark say, is this not Jesus, the son of Mary? are not his brothers, and he names his brothers. He, his sisters are here. But there's no mention of Joseph um, because he was known as simply the son of Mary without a father. Um, so that sheds some light on why Jesus would have been working as a tecton. Um, he would have been providing for his single mother and his little brothers and sisters. And so this sheds some light on what the life of Christ would have been like, the, the younger days. Um, there are all kinds of like random theories floated out there about what Jesus was doing in his youth. Um, there's these extra books that are written. Um, I believe the Book of Mormon has a couple crazy stories of, of Jesus like making like a, a dove out of sand and it's like flying away. Um, and then there's even a documentary, I believe it's on Netflix, called Jesus in India. Um, none, of that, none of that's true. Um, Jesus literally was just a regular Jewish boy working as a tecton, as a carpenter, serving his family, um, and studying to be a rabbi. All Jewish boys up until the age of 13 would have been studying to be rabbis. Um, We even know what school Jesus was studying at. Um, We can tell by the way that Jesus teaches. And so let me explain this for a second. There were seven schools of Jewish thought. Um, On one end... The really sort of conservative end would be um, Shammai, and more on the on the, the I hate these phrases, but the liberal end would be Hillel. Um, it there was there was these two on the ends, and then there's five different schools in the middle that were sort of offshoots of these. Um, so there's seven schools of thought, and the way that um, these two schools argued. Um, 
the thing that separated them, there's got to be like one particular issue, right, that separates people. Like if you're going to go this direction or you're going to go this direction, what is the one issue that's going to separate you? So the thing that they would always sit around and debate was simple. It was the debates always centered around what is the greatest commandment. Um, and, and this question popped up in all different types of scenarios because if you read the Torah, the ancient law, the Hebrew law, um, there are plenty of laws that contradict each other. Um, and so the question would be, well, which, which, which law do we follow then? If these two laws contradict each other, which one is more important in different situations? So let me show you an example. There would be a law that would say, there's one law that says don't physically expend yourself on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, we don't work, we rest. Right? It's a day of rest, it's a day of justice. The, not even the, um, the animals are going to work. Everyone's just going to be at peace the way they believe God created us to be. Um, and then there's another law that says if your neighbor's animal falls into a pit, Pull it out. These are both good laws. You, know, if you, um, you, you, you read a lot in the Old Testament about animals falling in pits. I mean, I, I would go and find the person digging all the pits around the animal places and be like, bro, like, they're making laws. Chill. Um, if your neighbor, neighbor's animal falls into a pit, help get it out of the pit. So what happens if your neighbor's animal falls into a pit on the Sabbath? What are you going to do, huh? What are you going to do? Well, this is where the schools of thought sort of would step in and you would debate this. And the question would be, what, what is the greatest law? In other words, which one are you going to obey? Which one are you going to ignore? Like the most important one is the one you're going to obey. So if you are from the school of Shammai, Shammai is all about um, the law and not breaking laws. We're going to be orderly. We're going to, we're going to live by the law. Laws are there for a reason and they're good and we're going to live by them. So we're going to keep the Sabbath. Um, basically, the animal's going to spend the night in the hole. Um, Hillel, um, they're going to look at this and they're going to say, well, the law is only important because it, it turns us towards love. Love is the most important thing towards God and towards all people and creation in the world. And so um, the Hillel is going to say, um, we're going to obey the Sabbath, but if an animal falls in the pit, we're going to break the Sabbath because um, love for God and creation is more important. And so the Hillel is, is going to be, they're going to pull the animal out of the pit. And all the Shammai people are going to be over there like, ah, oh, see, you see? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And these people over here will be like, you don't love anyone but yourselves and your law. And they're, they're debating, they're fighting, right? Um, and so you can see this in Jesus' conversations with people. You can kind of see what school of thought he was with. There's one passage in particular um, where um, the people asked Jesus, what is the most important law? So there's one law that all, five, all seven schools agree with. That is the most important law. Um, and if you were to ask any of them, hey, what is the most important law you can possibly follow in the Torah? They're going to tell you. And it's this law. It's called the Shema. Jesus quotes it. Um, it says one of, them, one of them, a lawyer, sort of a, a, a Jewish religious scholar lawyer, asks him a question to test him. Now, why, when I was a kid, I always be like, what are they testing him for? Like, what are they going like, to arrest him if he gives the wrong answer? Like, what are they doing? They're trying to figure out like, where he learned these things what school of thought he's with, and whether or not they can agree with him and listen to him, or whether or not they should shun him. He's not part of their group. They're trying to figure out if he's in or out, basically. And so one of them asks him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Everyone agreed with this. Everyone knew this is the greatest commandment that there was in all of scriptures. What determines your school of teaching was the second commandment. The Shema school would say, 
And the second commandment is to keep the Sabbath holy. But Jesus answers like this, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus' answer tells us where he studied, who he studied under. There's even one part where the people come to him and they say, where did you get your authority? Um, and we, as 21st century Christians, we tend to look at it and say, well, ask him where he got his um, sort of godly powers, right? No. Um, his authority as a rabbi to teach. Like, who blessed you and said, you, are, you, can, you can teach, you're a rabbi. Who gave you this authority? You remember what he answered? He said, who gave John his authority? They used to always answer in questions. What he's basically saying is, me and my cousin John had the same teacher. That's what he's saying. So, um, I just wish somebody had just said, it's Bob. um, We just don't know. Um, So, uh, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we know that in Jesus' youth, we know a lot of the things that he was doing. He was... He was working as a, as a stonemason in the bustling town of Nazareth um, where he would have had his worldview sort of built by the things he saw on his road. Um, he would have, um, he was studying to be a rabbi as all young Jewish boys were um, until the age of 13, um, in which case if you were good enough, you could continue your rabbinical studies and if, you're, if you weren't, you would be sent off to do your, um, your duties at home. Um, it's possible that Jesus was good enough. It's possible that he was sent home. It's possible that he chose to stay home and serve his parents um, so that uh, because, because he needed to and, and gave up sort of the, um, the higher-end studies, it's possible that he actually went and studied. Um, what we do know is rabbis began their ministry at the age of 30 every single time. It was the legal age that rabbis would begin their work. And that's the age that Jesus began his work. So all of this kind of paints a picture of like, what was Jesus doing? But all we really have from the scriptures is this passage in the book of Luke 2.52. It says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with men and God. Whatever it was that Jesus was doing. Luke. um, Luke writes his gospel after going and interviewing all kinds of people who knew Jesus. And from Luke, from the people he talked to, um, Jesus, as he grew, was highly respected. He was favored by people. He was very godly. Um, And he had this very sort of normal childhood existence, um, all centered around the town of Nazareth, where he grew up. Um, And so we can can sort of piece this all together and we start to see this this journey. But it's also pretty eye-opening as well. Is it not? I mean, um, you see Jesus learning things in his youth um, through his suffering, through his difficult, difficult journey that would sort of set the dials on his heart. So scholars have a lot of questions and theologians have a lot of questions about, well, what did Jesus know growing up about himself? We tend to have this picture of Jesus being born with full knowledge of what he was going to do, who he was. Scholars are divided on whether or not Jesus knew from the beginning what he was doing or whether or not this was a revelation that he came to as he was doing it, whether he made the path by walking it or whether the path was laid out before him and instilled inside of him. Um, I tend to argue on the side of humanity every time because I think that's what God wants us to see. Um, I think um, when you're talking about the divine in the flesh, fully God, fully man, I... Uh, I lean on the things where we even Paul says that he put aside his sort of divinity and 
became fully human. Um, and I see Jesus learning. I see Jesus working as this stonemason. I see people sometimes cheating him, um, not paying him, people being sometimes generous and gracious. I see him um, looking into the eyes of people who were there for them when his father died and pouring out into his life. I see him looking into the eyes of people traveling the trail, the road of the sea, and, and gleaming sort of an understanding of the human heart in all of this, the conquering warriors and the, the slaves doomed to die in the end, and the travelers that he would see on the road, becoming very familiar with all different sort of points of life as a poor son of a widow. And so we can see Jesus learning in his youth through, through all of this, because there's a lot of suffering in this day, growing up in this way. And you can kind of see this, the dials being set. And when, and when you look at how he interacted with people, you can see all of his youth sort of um, tuning how he's going to interact with people. We see his compassion for the oppressed women of his day, who, who no rabbi allowed women to follow and sit at his feet and, and teach them. This is not something that rabbis did for women. Um, but Jesus does this regularly. He has women following him, um, uh, him and the 12, all traveling with these different women, and you see them popping up in different stories over and over and over, and sometimes just, just sitting at his feet the way they would be equal with the rest of the disciples, and he's just pouring into them and teaching them. Um, and this was unheard of. This was unbecoming of a rabbi in his day. We see him constantly ministering um, to, to the, the sort of the peasants, the working, the impoverished, the people who feel neglected and forgotten and oppressed. They're there, and he's on the side of a mountain, and he's just speaking to them. He says, blessed are you, all of you who are just here in, in, in poverty. You see no way out. You see all you've ever known is a hard life. All you see is a hard life and for you and your children, and you're terrified. Um, I want you to know you're loved and you're blessed, and Jesus speaks to them because Jesus was one of them. Um, and we see him standing up against those in authority who do nothing to lift sort of a finger to ease the burdens. You know, you would have seen him regularly going to the temple, having to offer these sacrifices and overpay. Um, when I see him in, in the temple flipping over the tables and driving out the money changers, what I see is him having flashbacks probably to his youth with his mother, his poor widowed mother, um, whom he is providing for. Um, and they're going to the temple and she has to have her money exchanged and they're charging these outrageous rates just so that they can offer sacrifices in the temple to get right with God. And the anger that his entire life um, he would have felt at these people taking advantage of the poor people just like him, him and his mother and his brothers and sisters, because all they want to do is worship God and they're being told, you don't have the right stature. You're not, you're not rich enough to be loved by God. The rich are blessed. And so Jesus stands up and says, no, the poor, you're blessed too. So you can see sort of the gears moving in Jesus' head, the life that he lived and the way that he taught. It all kind of lines up together. Um, and then uh, and we see him welcoming children to sit in his lap. And I imagine Jesus having to take the fatherly role in his little brothers and sisters, understanding that that's all these children need is love and welcoming them in. None of his disciples who were rebuking these people for, don't let your kids in here. None of the disciples had a family or children. Jesus is used to having these tiny children around him as a young boy. And so you see the youth of Jesus and what we can glean from all this. Um, 
you sort of see this in his life and in the way that he, that he lives. Um, you also see him learning from his work. It seems that for Jesus, there was this understanding that every moment um, is sort of this part of the divine plan to move things forward, and he was somehow part of it. So him there, chiseling these stones as a tecton, um, it's almost like he saw this as a metaphor for something bigger, that whatever God is doing in this world, he's here taking part in it. Because um, when you see his disciples... Um, the followers of Jesus, when they're later on planting the church, they talk a lot about rocks and they talk a lot about Jesus building us together like rocks. As if, it's almost as if Jesus was incredibly familiar with rock cutting and placing and he always used it as a metaphor in his sermons to them when he's teaching them. Um, because you, you have Paul in this letter to Ephesians and he says, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So like in Jesus you are being built together. So Paul would have learned everything he knows. He met Jesus once on the road to Damascus, and that's it. But Paul learned everything from the disciples, likely from Peter. Um, Peter was probably had the biggest influence in the life of Paul. Um, and the way that we see Jesus talking to Peter, God, Jesus is always using these, uh, these tecton metaphors. We see, um, we see this one here in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. It says, we have Peter writing, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in, in, in the sight of, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter is, is using this sort of metaphor of, of people sometimes reject stones, but Jesus chooses those stones, which is fascinating because when you watch how Jesus chooses his disciples, who is he choosing? He's choosing fishermen, choosing tax collectors and zealots? Did he choose any rabbis? Did he choose any, any kids from rabbinical schools? No. These kids were old enough that they were out fishing and working, which means they had failed at rabbinical school, which means they were rejected. They were nothing. They were of no use to the spiritual sort of teachings, the spiritual leadership in the world. And Jesus goes to these rejected stones and he takes them. One of them is Peter. Peter's the oldest one. You see Peter speaking the most because Peter's the oldest. Um, and when Jesus meets Peter, he says something fascinating. So his brother brings him to Jesus. And Jesus, it says, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon. His name was Simon at the time. You are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. If you translate Peter directly from the Greek to English, it literally means a stone. You are a, you're a rock. That's what he says. So you have a tecton, and a disciple comes to him. What's your name? Simon? All right, Simon. You know what I see when I look at you? I see a rock. <laughs> you know what we're going to do? I'm going I'm to make you exactly what you need to be. I'm going to get out my tools, and I'm going to go to work on you. And he, he brings this up again later. Later he says, you are Peter. You are a rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And if I'm going to build my church... On you, Mr. Rock. <laughs> I got to shave some edges. We got to make this work. We got to clean you up. Because Peter makes a lot of messes. And Jesus is always sort of, now, Peter, you can't run away when things get dangerous. Um, you can't say um, uh, that you want to be in charge when I'm gone. Um, you can't say, uh, you can't deny knowing me, by the way. You can't do that. And so he's like, he's, like, he's like, this is what I'm doing with Peter. I'm carving this guy up. 
right? I'm making him exactly what I want him to be. Um, I love all of this. Um, you can picture Jesus as a young man doing his simple work of cutting and carving and providing for those in need who needed his help and provision. And it's almost as if like, he sees this simple work of like, carving stones in this divine way. Like, God, what do you want me to learn through this? What, what do you have for me? Praying the whole time. I picture, if you've ever read anything by Brother Lawrence, his big job was he was, the, he, he was, a, he was a monk, um, but he spent a lot of time peeling potatoes. And people used to come watch him peel potatoes because he was such a, a holy, joyous, happy guy. And they just wanted to spend time with him as he's just carefully working. And he would talk to them about how important every little tiny piece of work that he did was. I, that's how I picture Jesus. I picture Jesus sitting there like, what do you, what do you have for me? What, is this, what does all this mean? And sort of being present of the divine in every single moment, aware that God is teaching him what life is about, not through the grand moments, but through the everyday mundane kind of things. Um, and then you see uh, sort of everything was pointing to this same thing. Everything had this cohesive meaning that it was about the work of God being done in the world. And every day was filled with the work of God, whether he was chiseling stone for a temple or he was chiseling the hearts of the people around him. So he, he has to do this work and this work that he does with his physical hands becomes metaphorically the work that he does in the hearts and minds of the people around him. Um, and everything that he did was preparing him for the day way down the road when it would be his turn to start his ministry. I know, I know a lot of you want to fast forward. We have a young church. Um, I know you're desperate looking for meaning, meaning and purpose. Um, oftentimes it's when all that fades away and you say, well, I accomplished nothing that I plan on doing in my life and, um, and here I am. That's when you can look back and you can start to make sense of the things that you've been through and what God had for you to learn and then one day it's all sort of going to make sense. Oh, that was, that was about this. That was about something else entirely. That was not about that. Working minimum wage day in and day out with a PhD was never, was never about about that. That was about humility and, and, and teaching me that my worth is not found in these human things. That was teaching me what happiness is really about. It's not money, it's not career, it's the people that you're ministering to along the way. Um, and then you see, you know, what did Jesus learn from his relationships? Um, the son of a young widow. Um, the amount of pain he would have seen in his mother. Um, you can glean a lot from this. He's got, he's got a mother and siblings to take care of, which, which makes, honestly, his references to God as father incredibly beautiful. 181 times God is described as father. That's a lot. And there's a few times where he actually calls him Abba, which is equivalent to today a, a child saying, Daddy. I mean, did Jesus remember his father? Was he, when he pictures his father, he tends to picture the divine and the life that he's given. And so this is incredibly beautiful. Um, widows, single mothers can draw a lot of strength um, through looking at the story of Mary as a single mother of many child raising what turns out to be the most influential man in all of history. 
That has a lot to say about how pedigree doesn't matter, right? Um, those who have lost a father can know that we serve a God who understands. Um, Jesus understands your suffering. He is there in that. He's felt that. Um, you are not alone. You do not serve a God who doesn't understand the pain of losing your father. Um, and honestly, a hard life brings about compassion and empathy. Being familiar with suffering um, helps you understand how to lead others through suffering. Being familiar with oppression leads you to understand what oppression does to others and how to save them from it. Um, so there's this guy. He looks like this. His name is Leo Tolstoy, right? Um, and maybe you've read his books. And if you, uh, a lot of college students, you have to read a lot of his books. And, and uh, he, I mean, he's, he's written, he's a Russian writer and sort of a philosopher from the mid-1800s. Um, he, he wrote some very famous books, um, Anna, Anna Karenina. I'm not, I never said that right. Um, and then uh, um, War and Peace, stuff like that. But, but later on in his life, he, he had sort of this spiritual awakening, they say. And he started writing books about Jesus. And he wrote a lot about love. And he's always, he sort of got involved in like sort of morality. He's always telling people, um, the most important thing is love and talking all about love, love, love. Um, and then I, I always see him quoted at like, Weddings. I've done a couple of weddings where they're like, I want you to throw this Tolstoy quote in. I'm like, ooh, fancy. Um, and, uh, and so people like to talk about him, and, 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 and whenever you see times of political upheaval, you'll see people sometimes quoting Tolstoy quotes on love. Um, the problem is when you look at his past, especially if you look at his, like, the things people said about him who knew him personally. Um, for instance, here's a, this is his wife, uh, Sophia Tolstoyata, and she, here's, what she, here's what she says about him. And this stuff's important to know. Um, there is so little genuine warmth about him. His kindness does not come from the heart, but merely from his principles. His biographies will tell of how he helps the laborers to carry buckets of water, but no one will ever know that he never gave his wife a rest and never in all these 32 years gave his child a drink of water or spent five minutes by his bedside to give me a chance to rest a little from all my labors. So there's... Have you ever, like, hear people, you ever heard somebody talk about some big profound thing, and you can look at their face and be like, yeah, they don't really believe that. They're saying that um, because it's like their career. They're saying that because they, they sort of, they're just building up this thing, right? To make money, to get fame, whatever. They don't really believe it. You can see it. You can sense it. You can feel it. And the only people that are really convinced um, um, later, that, that they were, the only people that were really convinced that they're sincere are the people who don't really spend time around them. That is not Jesus. There is a difference in learning something in books and learning something from someone standing up here telling it to you, learning something from uh, your, your parents giving it to you, um, and learning through walking the path. There's a difference. When you experience pain and suffering firsthand, it gives legs to things and you can say things and communicate things in ways that you, that you never could before. You suddenly have empathy that you never had before. You meet people and, and you kind of say in your mind, like, they have such empathy. They care so much about people. And you kind of wish you had what they had. And then later you come to find out how they got that. And then you backpedal a little and say, well, I never want to go through that. But if you, the only way to get that is, is, is to walk it, to experience it. You serve and follow a Jesus Christ who is familiar 
with your pain and your suffering. There's this passage in Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews um, says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the high priest in Jesus' day is very much sort of like Tolstoy. They're born in this rich aristocratic sort of family, if you will. If you're a Levite, your entire life, you have free meals, free wine, a free job. You had a free job in the temple anytime you wanted it. You're a Levite. Um, and so the Levites are the ones that would stand up in the temple and say, well, we're going to make you right with God. We're the priests. The priest's job is to make you right with God. Here's what sacrifices you offer. Um, what sins have you committed? Well, that's a really bad one. You're going to have to offer this and this and this. But, but I mean, the question you kind of have is like, how do they know what you've been through? How do they know what you need? How do they know how to heal you and give you hope and lead you out if they have never been there? If they've never experienced anything but comfort in their life. And then in walks Jesus, who we talked about last week, born at the bottom. God is with us. He's experienced it. He understands it. He knows pain. And so when Jesus speaks to you about your pain, you can listen. Because he's the, sort of the pioneer of this all. He, he goes first and shows you the way out and, and we walk with him. I don't know where you're at. I don't, I don't know what all of you struggle with. I don't know the pains that you're experiencing, what you're going through right now. And maybe you have this picture in your head of God far away and Jesus just receiving, waking up, being born with this really divine thing, his path all laid out for him. That is not the case. You serve um, a Jesus who was figuring this out on this earth the same way that you were and rose above and showed us how it's done. And you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. And when you look at Jesus, you can see God. And so that's why we follow him. Um, so we're going to take communion. It's the right response. So our communion servers, you guys can take the, uh, the elements and spread around the room if you would. Um, take a few minutes. Um, today during communion, and I want, I want you to ponder that the true humanity of Jesus. Picture him driving out the money changers in the temple, now in a new light, understanding his pain as a child, um, with a poor mother going to the temple to worship and having to pay and lose money every time just to worship God. Picture him working with these people who were really rough around the edges after a lifetime of carving stones, um, knowing full well that just like being a regular stonemason, you'll never see the building really completed. And it wasn't until long after Jesus' death that we see these people rise up and really run out there and, and take up his cross. I mean, there's a lot there. So let's spend some time pondering the humanity of Jesus um, and sort of liken yourself to him in that way. Um, put your own experience up against it. Understand that the things that you were learning today through your hardships will come into play at some point. It is, it is all included in what God is doing.
It, it belongs. Um, and somehow God will use that to make something right somewhere else. As difficult as it is to go through. So let's pray. Father, we love you. As we come to you in communion, as we come to the table, remind us that your body was broken for us. Your blood was spilled for us. So that we could find the hope that we need. That we could find salvation. Reconcile us and, uh, and, and the world around us to you. And use us. Use our experiences. And may we one day look back and just kind of say, oh, that's, that's what this was about. And while we are in it, let us be present. Let us understand that it's in the mundane, it's in the, the common moments that you bring the broken, blo- the broken body and the spilled blood of Christ. That you bring the communion table into these common moments and you give them importance. Allow us to learn to be present and aware that the divine is close to us, near us, and speaking to us. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take a few moments to talk to Christ.